What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of the New York Sports Minute. It is Friday, June 2nd, and as always, I am very excited for this week's episode. But before I get into the content, I first want to take a step back and really walk you guys through what the last five or six months have been like for the show. So last week, I went on vacation. We went to Hawaii, where we visited Oahu and Maui. And I spent most of the week drinking, eating, sitting on the beach, going for the occasional hike. But I also spent a lot of time reflecting, thinking about work, thinking about family, thinking of all that stuff, and obviously thinking about the podcast. And so the podcast started in January of this year. I recorded my first episode right after the new year. This actually marks the 21st episode that we've released. And we actually haven't missed a week up until last week when I was on vacation. So we released an episode every Friday for the last 21 weeks. And it's been pretty cool to see the overall reaction to this. We're now at the point where we've had thousands of unique listens over the past couple months. We have interviewed people from my childhood to close friends I've met from college to star Yankees players like Michael King, who's having an awesome year. Shout out Michael King. And probably the coolest part, I was looking at the data the other day, and I saw that we now have listeners across 12 different countries from the U.S., Mexico, England, because Sean Murray's friends over there who are big British soccer fans listen to our show. We have listeners down in Guatemala. I guess there's maybe a big contingency of Mets fans down there. It's just been really cool to see the overwhelmingly positive reaction to the show. And so I want to thank everyone for listening every week. I want to thank everyone for sharing this with friends and with family. But I also want to share that I've learned kind of what's working with this show and what isn't. I started this show as a way to provide instant reactions to all New York sports, instant reactions to the Giants playoff games, reactions to Mets and Yankees games, reactions to the Knicks playoff run. But what I found most is I actually love the interviews. I love interviewing people who are in and around sports. I love interviewing players and coaches and crazy fans because I think my passion for all this is really just sharing everyone's story. I'm finding whether you're a star Yankees pitcher or just a diehard fan, everyone's got a story to tell. And so moving forward, the New York Sports Minute is going to be a podcast more dedicated to interviews. I'm going to be interviewing all folks around sports who have a good story to share. And this week, I can't think of a better one because I'm actually interviewing an executive at my company, Jeff Austin. Jeff is not only an executive at a technology company, But he was also a first-round draft pick by the Kansas City Royals back in the 1990s. He was actually selected fourth overall by the Royals and played in the major leagues. I sat down with Jeff to talk about growing up in Texas, being a phenom in baseball, playing at Stanford, getting drafted in the first round as a fourth overall pick, and then eventually transitioning into corporate life and what that's been like for him. So this is an awesome episode. If this is the first time you're listening, I drop episodes every Friday, so please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen. And yeah, I appreciate everyone's sponsorship this far. I appreciate everyone listening. It's an awesome interview with Jeff. And so, like always, just hit the music. This is the New York Sports Minute with your host, Morgan Eck. All right. Very excited to welcome the show. Former first round pick by the Kansas City Royals, current 
technology executive at a, a software company. And that is a good friend of mine, Jeff Austin. Jeff, how you doing, man? Welcome to the show. I'm great. I'm great, Morgan. I'm excited. Uh, I don't get too many opportunities to dig up the yearbook. And so uh, I look forward to this conversation. Yeah, man. And, you know, I kicked off the show before you joined, kind of speaking to the interviews of sports and specifically getting people's stories who have been in the game, around the game, fans of the game. And so to paint a little bit of background for the listeners, Jeff and I work together. Uh, Jeff is a sales leader at my tech company, and him and I have shared stories about him originally being drafted by the Royals and playing in the big leagues and now transitioning into corporate life, right? And so, Jeff, I was just pumped to have you on, man, to, you know, obviously talk about baseball, but also talk about kind of that transition as well. So I think you got a pretty unique story, man, and excited to share that with listeners. Yeah, I'm excited. To, I'm excited to share. I, you know, who knows where this is going to go? We'll see. Uh, <laughs> we'll see what uh, we'll see what comes out of, out of the past. So I'm excited. Awesome. Well, all right. So before we get into it, I do want to start kind of chronologically, but I did notice you have a pretty cool fun fact. Is this true that you're one of two pitchers to start off the game, giving up three straight home runs? Is that true? I believe that I was the second to do it. Thank God I wasn't the first because then I'm the answer to a trivia question. You don't want to be the answer to. I believe that since I have done it, another person has also given up three home runs to start the game. So I'm in that nice little sandwich where I wasn't the first, I wasn't the most recent. It wasn't one of my best days, but that is absolutely true. It was, I was in Atlanta. My arm was hanging by a thread. This is probably six weeks before I ultimately had surgery that would end my career. Start off the game, Rafael for call, Jack. Second hitter was Mark DeRosa, Jack. Third hitter, Gary Sheffield with his, with his wiffle ball, bat style, you know, wiffle, uh, uh, bat waggle, Jack. And I'm just, just going, what am I doing out here? And then what's even more, what's even better, uh, I get Chipper Jones out. I'm like, all right, okay, three runs, no big deal. We can get back into it. I get Andrew Jones out. Sweet, feeling good. Javi Lopez comes up, Jack. <laughs> Four home runs in the first inning. I don't know if anybody's done that, uh, but that was the last pitch that I actually threw in the big leagues. They sent me down after the game. Three weeks later, my arms hang in. I go get it looked at, shoulder surgery. That was the last major league pitch I threw. Oh, man. Talk about going out with a bang. At least you're you know, talking, going out with a memory. I mean, I got a great story about it. But thank, thank goodness I was, uh, you know, I actually did get some people out that day. And I can always drop the Andrew Jones, Chipper Jones thing because that's kind of cool story but uh but yeah that was not not one of my better days let's just say that hey well listen man i would say it's a lot better that you're playing against the braves who had legendary guys gary sheffield you know andrew jones chipper jones it wasn't like you were playing guys that we've never heard of that's like an all-star hall of fame level lineup we're talking about hall of fame that was in the um i don't know where smoltz was by then but that was the greg maddox tom glavin smoltz um uh, era Steve Avery was gone by then like those are the Atlanta Braves of the of the almost late 90s early 2000s that everybody knew and you know people were people are lifelong Braves fans because of those guys I want to do this one in chronological order obviously I want to talk about your career a little bit I want to talk about transitioning to tech but you know to start you grew up in Texas right Kingwood Texas Kingwood Texas outside of what, Houston what's Kingwood Texas like it's a suburb, right? White Anglo-Saxon Protestant wasp nest, right? Predominantly, 
you know, upper middle class. I was, um, I was very fortunate. I was dead to working parents. Um, you know, a lot of folks from Texas are proud as I was, um, to be from Texas and, you know, it gives you a little bit of confidence and, uh, everything's bigger in Texas, but I stopped growing when I was in eighth grade. So I'm only six feet tall now. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was hot. And, and I know that after having gone to school in California and living elsewhere now, I didn't know that growing up. I thought every place was as hot as Texas is, but, uh, um, it was a, it was a suburban planned community that I grew up in that I, I, I had a great childhood. I, when I think of like central Texas, I always think of football and like Friday night lights, but was baseball huge down in Texas that time too? Was it as big as football is? I don't think anything will ever be as big as football is in Texas, Texas. Um, baseball was big enough, right? Football, basketball, baseball. Um, but, but football's absolutely king in Texas. And even in high school, you know, I was, you know, they moved me up into the varsity fourth hour workout hour after my freshman year. And I quit and I transferred over to the baseball, uh, baseball deal. And I remember that the head coach saying like, well, what are you doing? Why, why'd you transfer out? I'm like, coach, I'm, I'm not playing in the NFL. Like I, I could, I, I got a decent arm. I think I might be able to go to college. And so I remember him being pissed off that I, that I did that, but you know, football is king in Texas to answer your question. Yeah. No, I, I know. I always think of those Friday night light type videos, but a lot of big name baseball players have come out of Texas. Um, one of the questions I want to ask you is we joked around about the three homers, but you were a phenom and you had an awesome career at Stanford. You were fourth overall pick by the Royals. Were you always this sort of touted guy coming out of middle school, high school? Was it something that you were kind of a late bloomer? What was that like for you growing up and becoming that early draft pick? Yeah, I was I was projected to be a late first round, early second round pick out of high school. Um, and I wrote a letter to every single major league club saying, hey, don't draft me. I'm going to Stanford. Just wanted to be above board because uh, and quite frankly, I didn't want the temptation because knowing the opportunity that I had to go to a school like Stanford on an, on a scholarship where I otherwise would not have stepped foot on Stanford's campus. Right. I was I was fortunate that, um, you know, athletics, though Stanford has academic standards they need to meet. Um, I was, you know, considered as a result of the, the prowess that I had in athletics. And so um, I wrote a letter to all major league clubs. They said, don't draft me. And Montreal drafted me. The Montreal Expos draft, draft now the, the, whatever they are, those, the, all I can think of is the, the Nationals. Oh, yeah, the Washington Nationals. Nationals. The Nationals, yeah. thank yeah. you. The Expos drafted me in the 10th round. They kind of did the song and dance. They offered me, I think this is in 1995. They offered me like $800,000 to sign. I had to turn that down to go to school. Um, but but to answer your question, was I always a phenom? Was I always hot, highly touted? A, a little bit, only because I threw hard. Um, in high school, I was throwing 91. Um, had a good breaking ball. Always had a good breaking ball. And I could locate. And I was a pretty decent athlete. Um, yeah, so So I was... I was always touted as someone who would have, would have been a prospect to answer your question. Gotcha. It reminds me of the expo is taking you that late. reminds me of like, remember when Russell Wilson was getting drafted and people thought same with like Kyler Murray, except he ended up being, I think a first round in both, but just like, you know, taking a flyer, the expos were like, Hey, this guy's a first round pick. Let's take him a little bit later and see what happens. You never know. You yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and I, I wavered, right. I, I, you know, it's, 18 years old, somebody waves, you know, almost a million bucks in front of you in 1995. It's pretty tough to turn down. Even though I think most people would argue a Stanford education is probably worth over a million bucks at this point. So I think you made the uh, the right decision, but that must have been tough. For sure. For sure. And, like, you know, I, I, I went to high school with another 
young man or my age, another guy who was drafted in the first round by the Boston Red Sox, his name is Andy Yount. And you've never heard of Andy because he had a pretty gruesome finger injury, but he threw harder than I did. And so we were both, um, you know, pretty touted high school players. So we had, you know, I don't know, 30 radar guns every single time we pitched um, because every single scout in America, it seemed, was, was coming to the Kingwood Mustangs high school baseball league to see, to see me or Andy on. Andy did wind up signing for, what did he sign for? 986000 in 1995 to the Boston Red Sox. And he was the 14th overall pick. I'm going to mess that up. But he was, he was a first rounder. Damn, two top 20 picks. That's pretty wild. There's not many high schools that can say that. That was the, um, that was the same year. So Kerry Wood was in yeah. that same draft class. And he went to Grand Prairie, Texas out of Dallas. I think he was like the third or fourth overall pick that year. This is going way back. It's way back. That's, that's funny, man. Well, one of the questions I want to ask you, Jeff, is like, you know, whenever you're at a game, and no matter who the player is, your dad's always like, hey, he's still, you know, one of the best players in the world, ready to talk about how good they are. Be curious, like at a high school level, when did you start to notice you were significantly better than like the average pitcher, like the average good pitcher who maybe goes on and plays D3 or something? What was, do you have like a moment or a part of your life where you're like, okay, I'm different. I could make potentially make this a career and make them a lot of money doing this. Yeah. Um, I, I, like I always threw hard. I was, I was throwing 86 my sophomore year and I think I touched 90 my junior year. And when that, it, and this, this is before I feel like everybody, um, everybody throws ambidextrously 90 miles an hour in high school. Now this is before people did that. Right. When I was, when, even when I was starting to scratch the big leagues, like 95, 96 miles an hour was hard. I feel like everybody throws 102 now. It's yeah. just very, it's very different. And so I was throwing hard enough um, as a as a younger player, and I was built out. And I was big enough, um, but I think it was probably my junior year. You know, made it on the varsity team, and we, you know, Texas five A baseball is a big enough deal where you started to see pretty good, you know, competition, and you start to recognize that, you know, you, you all of a sudden you're leading the leading the Houston area in strikeouts as a junior, and I've got ten wins on the year. I kind of you know, recognize that, that, that I could have, I could at least go to college, right? I, I don't want to think I was ever thinking about um, pro ball, but then you, what was really interesting, the big league clubs start sending you Christmas cards. And I remember I got a Christmas card from the Toronto Blue Jays and I got a Christmas card from the, from the Minnesota Twins uh, my junior year. And I'm like, well, that's, that's kind of cool. That's, then, that doesn't happen to everyone. <laughs> then it's, then it started to click. Um, but just, you know, and it, it, the recruiting process for college and even for, you know, being noticed by scouts, I, I was fortunate. I had a pretty good high school coach that put me on the radar with and had relationships with, you know, teams or just people he had played with. And so he kind of got the word out. Um, but it was junior, it was junior year in high school when I, when I first figured out I could probably do something. Stanford, you decide I want to go to Stanford. You decided to decline the MLB, obviously. What made you pick them? Was it an academic thing? Did you have other offers to D1 programs? Was it always a dream of yours? What, what made you want to go out there out at West? Yeah, it's, I mean, it was bar none, the best combination of athletics and academics that I could ever ask for. And I think to this day, I'm sure that there are rival schools, but especially in the, in the mid nineties. So I was senior in high school in 95. Um, it, it, as a, the rules may have changed by now, but you're able to take five official visits as a recruit. And I went to Stanford, the Miami, Miami University um, in Florida, Texas A&M, 
uh, Duke and Clemson. And then I went three unofficials. I went to LSU, Tulane and Rice. And all eight of those schools offer, offer excuse me, all, seven of those schools offered me a full ride. Jeff, you don't even have to fill out an application. You're in. Duke, hey, you're in. You're good. We'll give you a full ride. No problem. Wow. Like I was, I was that high profile of a recruit. Stanford was the only place that made me fill out an application. And then, fun fact, they're like, hey, Jeff, uh, I saw your application. You might want to just, you know, clean that up a little bit. So I like I almost got a second chance at making sure that it was up to the standard of, you know, um, you know, a Stanford admit. And so like, there was a lot of respect, honestly, that that organization or that, that, that they earned. And, and part of the reason why I wanted to go there is that they weren't, they weren't just rolling out the red carpet. They're like, Hey, guess what? We're, we're special. And we know it. Um, but I, I honestly, I could have, I could have gone anywhere I wanted to go. It was pretty cool. Wow. So you're a, you're a sucker for hard to get a little bit. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I guess you're right. That's cool. I there's, mean, st- there's standards there, right? If you, when you yeah. I'm, and also when you step on, you know, recruiting process, when you step onto a college campus, I remember I went to Miami and everybody had an earring and I'm like, I'm not really an earring guy. Like I just, just didn't fit with, with who, with, 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 uh, with my MO. Um, Duke was a little cold. Texas A&M was too close to home. Um, you know, Clemson at the time had Billy Koch and Chris, Chris Benson and Ken Vining, and they had a great program. It just didn't fit. When I stepped on Stanford's campus, it was just the right fit more than yeah. anything else. That's funny. You know, you're a Texas boy when you say North Carolina is cold. Like us <laughs> uh, us right. New Yorkers, like it's like balmy down there. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's also crazy when you think about the recruiting process too. Like back then there was no social media. You weren't blown up via TikTok because you were throwing gas. You weren't I would imagine the summer circuits weren't as much of a thing as they are now where like kids aren't even playing for their high school teams anymore. They're mainly playing for these like travel teams. And the third piece, like the NIL stuff, like obviously there was some under the table things, but nowadays I imagine you look at these college players being like, how do these kids deal with all this stuff? I can't imagine. I can't, I think, you know, I have three kids and I thankfully none of them are yet have any idea what social media um, is. I can't imagine having to manage a, a profile and and having to basically sell what it is that you do, you know, with everybody else who can put together a, you know, a highlight reel and make you look great. Um, I, I'm grateful that I didn't have to do that. It was, you know, you could let your, let your performance talk a lot more than your social media presence. I, um, in, in the name, image, and likeness thing, I never, I was never good enough. <laughs> I was never good enough or was never exposed in college baseball as a revenue sport. Um, wasn't ever offered anything, anything like that. Um, but I, it would have been cool to see, you know, to think about what name, image, and likeness would have been like as a high profile enough recruit if there would be some sort of sponsorship. Because I still think that that's cool. I still think that at one point in time, I had a Mizuno contract and I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. And I was, I was a big runner. I was trying to get ASIC shoes to sponsor me and it never happened. And Scott Boris was my agent. I, Scott, I want to, I want to, you know, I get ASIC shoes to sponsor me. It's like, Jeff, just, just keep working on your game. Man. Just relax. <laughs> like we, we have much bigger fish to fry. If, yeah. if ASICs is our only I got to renegotiate A-Rod's contract. Go, go sit in the, go, go get better. And then we can talk about ASIC shoes. <laughs> so you get to Stanford. You, what, you played for, I think three years. Was it right? You played for three seasons. Three seasons. And then the last season you win collegiate player of the year, which is crazy. I did not know that. So you're a player of the year. That's also when you got drafted. What was what were those three years like at Stanford? I guess especially that kind of final year, seemingly when it all clicked. Like, what was that all like for you? Yeah, they, I mean, there were there was a lot of 
development and growth. And they were very different. My freshman year, right, AJ Hinch, who's now the manager of the Tigers, was my catcher. And I got to room with him on the road. And and honestly, like he's a guy that he's a guy's guy that guys look up to. He's a leader of men. And like I mm-hmm. learned a lot from him having just the experience around him. And then I got to play with him in Kansas City. We were on the same team when I was with Kansas City for a while. And that was great. Um, but my my freshman year was like a you you jump into a, a much bigger pond all of a sudden. It was a big adjustment socially, athletically, et cetera. And then my sophomore year, it was interesting because I really started throwing hard. I started throwing 95, 96, because they moved me to the bullpen. And all of a sudden, it just things just clicked. Went to the World Series. I had a great college World Series. I made college World Series all tournament team or whatever it was. And still have the VCR tape somewhere around of the, of the highlights of that. Uh, if this is 1996, 97, the 97 World yeah, College. Say, yeah, 97. And, every, and, and then I played, I went and played for the, U, the U.S. team in a non-Olympic year. And that was cool. We got to pitch, got to pitch in Spain and got to pitch in, um, in Tokyo and Japan. We toured, toured Japan. That was really cool. But that College World Series stint kind of kicked off this year where everything went right. Um, and it, I just got into a mental mindset where everything clicked. And I learned that instead of going max effort all the time, if you... Greg Maddox tells a story about when he gets in trouble on the mound, he wouldn't think about throwing harder. Greg Maddox used to be able to throw 94 miles an hour, but he wouldn't think about throwing harder and trying to over muscle guys. He would think about throwing softer because that allowed him to manipulate the baseball and put it right where he wanted to be and create movement. And I took that, took that my junior year and everything just fell into place. I threw the ball downhill. I changed speeds. I really incorporated a change up into my repertoire. And that really was a big equalizer where I could throw hard enough to get it by somebody. But if I had a change up that I could throw on any count, it made my fastball that was as a starter in college, 91, 92, um, four or five miles an hour faster because they had to respect the change up. I could throw in a, in a down count with a good breaking ball. And I kind of had this, this total package, at least at the college level, that that came together, um, it was a pretty magical year. It was fun. So, is that when we think about coaching? Like, I would imagine you get to a certain level where everyone has electric stuff. Everyone's thrown in the '90s. Everyone's got good stuff, or at least to an extent, right? Is when you think about coaching, is it a lot of your coaches at Stanford were teaching you how to pitch and how to get guys out in situational stuff, or was it more working on your stuff, working on your actual pitches and your mechanics of those? Yeah, I, I think it's all of the above. I think it applies to, it's a journey, right? It's a, it's a developmental journey, just like everything on it, quite frankly, just like sales is. And you learn different skills when you learn, um, you, you grow into the role, right? I think my sophomore year at college, in college, I could throw really hard and I got frustrated at the point where I could out, I could out muscle guys. I had a really good breaking ball. I could throw really hard for one or two innings. Um, but I, but I, but it was the development and the understanding and the cons- how, how you could develop consistency. And I think consistency in coaching is more important than stuff. Mm-hmm. You can have a guy with stuff that has electric stuff, but if you can't command it or he can't bring the same stuff to the yard every single day, he's tough to rely on. And I think about, you know, I'm not going to transition to the working world too much, but if you can be consistent, not necessarily with, performance but with what you bring the skills you bring to the office or to the field every single day then a manager can rely on you 
and, and put you in a situation because you become a chess piece with power. You become somebody that can execute in any given circumstance. David Eckstein. Remember that guy with the Angels or the Cardinals or so? Yeah, he's he my uncle. Five eight, hundred and nothing. Couldn't hit. No. Wait, what? No, I'm just kidding. Just different. What? Sounds similar last name. I'm just kidding. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just saying, we, we just yeah. struck gold. But yeah. this guy was five eight, hundred and nothing pounds, but he could lay it out a bun. He knew he could get the runner over. He was he was nails defense on the field. He was solid. Yeah. And as a manager at any level, you will take consistent and serviceable and solid over a flash in the pan that, you know, a guy that throws 97 with a great breaking ball, but can't control it. Cause you're, you're thinking about how to win the game, not necessarily how to just get one hitter out. Yeah. I mean, like when I think about some of my favorite players growing up, right. Like guys like Bartolo Colon, right. Like, I mean, yeah, he had some all-star years in him, obviously he's a hall of fame guy, but his, he was just the guy you knew was going to show up, give you six innings, two runs, you know, strike out six, seven guys. He was throwing like 88 his last year, but he just was Mr. Consistent. You knew if he was on the mound, you were not getting blown out. You know, you knew it was going to be a close game. And if they got a couple of runs, you're probably going to win. One of my, one of my favorite highlights is number one, him going yard. Cause he did that once yep. or the one where he's running over to first base and he flips it behind his back and gets the guy at first base. Those are the two best Bartolo Colon highlights for sure. No, but I, it's the consistent guys that are always everyone, most everyone's favorite player, right? It's like the guy who comes up, bases loaded one out, you know, is going to drive in the guy. He might not hit a grand slam, but you know, he's at least going the other way with it, driving in at least one. And it's like, those are the guys that end up playing 20 years, right? And those are the guys that are the, like at the hitters for me were the toughest to get out. The guys that were balanced, I could get, I could get Albert Pujols out most of the time I could get. <laughs> Um, you know, the guys with the bigger swings, at least when my arm wasn't hanging, I could get them out. The guys I had trouble with were like Omar Vizquel or like Royce Clayton. The guys like the, the journeyman hitters that were balanced and I couldn't get them off balance and they could put the bat on the ball enough. I just couldn't get those guys out. If you have a big hole in your swing, if you're trying to do too much, I could exploit that type of pitcher I was. But, but if you're balanced, I didn't have the type of stuff to overstuff somebody at the big league level. Right. You just knew that they're eventually going to outlast you. It was like a battle, six, right. seven, eight pitches, and eventually you're going to make a mistake. Right. Right. That's exactly. crazy. But that, but that requires constraint from a hitter from as, at, in their approach. Cause every, every guy has a bit of an ego and even the Royce Clayton's and the Omar Vizquel's of the world, they want to, even the David Eckstein's of the world want to take you deep and get big on a pitch every now and again. But if you try to do that too much, then you leave a hole in your swing. And so it's this almost this, this chess, this cat and mouse game between a pitcher and a hitter about what approach you bring to the plate versus what the pitcher's skills are and how can you exploit that? The chess game itself. I think that's a good, good topic. I want to ask you about nowadays it's different because we have this pitch clock. So the game is much faster for these pitchers. You don't have time to think you don't have time to reset. You don't have time to read the body language of hitters. Like you used to, as you're watching the game now, how different is that? as a former player, like, is it night and day different for these guys? Or do you think they're picking up on it pretty quick? I, I think it just happens faster. And it has like pitch to pitch or pitch sequencing. Um, it, it's the same cat and mouse game. Um, and it goes from what did I throw this guy the first time up through the order? What is he going to see the second time through the order? How did he react to certain pitches? Did he swing first pitch? Or does he swing first pitch? Not to get too much into the sabermetrics and analytics, but I was the guy that sat in the dugout and would keep track in a journal 
of the hitters. And I would keep track if they would swing first pitch. I would keep track if they would chase. And like, this is before we had all that data. I can't imagine what they have now. But but I think the, the game of cat and mouse is the same. It's just happening faster. And there's a, there's a new wrinkle that is, how can you manipulate your ability to get hitters out using the pitch clock? Because I don't think the hitters like it either. And I, and I was a guy that liked to work fast anyway. And so I would... I would, I would, I would love the pitch clock if it was around when back in the day, but, uh, uh, how, what do you think about the pitch clock? I love it. First off, I love it for a couple of reasons. Um, the viewing experience is 10 times better. Like, I don't know if you've been to a professional game yet, but we went yeah. a couple of weeks ago, a bunch of us went to the Mets game. They were playing against the Rockies. It was like an early April game, right? You know, the energy in the stadium isn't quite there yet. So it's a fun time but it's not a game you'd want to be at for like five hours where you're sitting there and you look up and it's only like the third inning and you're like, all right, we've been here for like three hours already. So the, the pace is so much better for the, the, the person watching the game. Cause it's predictable. You're there for two and a half hours. You can go to a bar after and meet up with people. It's not like this, like all day event. So from my perspective as like the average fan going to games, man, it's awesome. It's a way more just fun night to go out and do stuff, you know? I, I, as a player, right. I would pitch it once every five days, or if I was in the pen, I'd go once every other day or whatever it was. And it was like clockwork. It was every three innings took an hour at least. Yep. And sometimes you'd be there for four and a half hours. And even as a player, right. 162 games plus playoffs. If you go into playoffs, that's a long season. Mm-hmm. It is, it was too much. And so I'm, I'm happy they did it for sure. We, so we go out to city field. It takes an hour to get to city field from our apartment. So we leave at six o'clock, get in there for a seven o'clock game. It used to end at 1030. You don't get home until like 1130 or 12. So you're gone from basically six to 12. Whereas now we go out, we leave at six and we left the game at 930. So we were at a bar at like 10 o'clock, 1030, which is just like totally different. It's better. People want to go to games now. I don't know if it's necessarily going to like improve the ratings by 30%, but I don't think that's the goal of it. I think it's just to make it a little bit more fun to watch, a little bit more manageable, like a little bit more easier for these people to go to a game and not commit six hours to, you know? I mean, I mean, look, I fell in love with the game of baseball when my dad would take me. We had season tickets to the Astros. I want to say season tickets. We had like packages of like 15 games or something. Yeah, yeah. We would go to 15 games a year. And I remember being dog ass tired sometimes because even then the games were a little bit longer. We'd get, get home late. And I've always said that baseball is a game for – young young boys or boys and older men right partially because of the time that it takes to watch but so you're broadening your audience because guess what old guys fall asleep and little kids got to go to school and if we guys like yourself to the bar well hey guess what like everybody's happy right like it's a it's a win all around i was initially opposed because i a little bit of a purist but what it's done for time and like the product that's on the field it's great they uh they showed the other few weeks ago the Mets game showed like an inning without the pitch clock they kind of did a little quick flashback and it was like night and day it was like watching a movie in black and white you're like how did I used to watch this you know like they show like Scherzer made a pitch then he changed out the ball then he paced around then someone had to change their gloves and I'm like I don't know how we used to watch this they're doing the world baseball classic too they didn't have it and it's like I think it's gonna be one of those things they're gonna look back at and be like I don't know how people used to watch this game when it was four hours long I just don't know yeah. I'm 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 happy it's here. I can I you know I got to face Nomar Garciaparra in spring training. That was one of the things. Like when you when you get into the big leagues, and you start facing hitters that you've watched. And you face superstars. Like the first guy I ever faced that was a a superstar was Ruben Sierra, and I faced him in AAA. He was playing in for um, 
Oklahoma City. It was the AAA with the Red with the Rangers coming back down right as I was going up, and I'm like, oh, this yeah. is really cool. I faced Nomar in uh, in spring training in Fort Myers, um, and he was doing his, you know, his this thing and he this the whole yep. the whole routine, which was cool. But um, it, you know, I, I'm happy where we are. Uh, it's a much better product. So, yeah. Well, the other thing I want to ask you, you mentioned Nomar, you mentioned a lot of these big name guys you played in, I would argue one of the most interesting time in baseball too. Like we obviously talked about those brave teams, but 98, that was the year McGuire and Sosa were chasing each other. You had the steroid era that just totally changed and probably saved the game. Let's be totally honest. People like me are fans because I would turn on the TV to watch Barry Bonds. And so what was it like being a pitcher in this steroid era where you probably knew the other guy was cheating? Like, what was that like? You know, here's where I, I'm a little bit of a unicorn because I was just, I was just a nice young man. I didn't know anything about it. I didn't, I was just there to be the best ball player I could. And I was going to give it the old college try. And I didn't know a first thing about it. I, I, I looking back on it and post surgery, um, I played in, I played for the Long Island Ducks and played and played out there for a little bit. And I got to play with John Rocker. Um, and just some of the stories that kind of came out about um, what guys were doing, I had no idea. Right? If I honestly, Morgan, if I was, if I would have juiced, I was throwing 96 miles an hour, best bolt, 96, one time, clean. Like, w- would that have put me at 100 when guys weren't throwing 100? Would I have been a closer for the Royals for you know X number of years before I you know blew my arm out completely? And but 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 would I would I have signed a long term deal as a closer? Maybe. Um, yeah. And so that, like, I remember, so one of the guys who was implicated in the steroid thing, Jason Grimsley, was my running partner in Kansas City. And Grimsley played for the Yankees for a little bit. He threw one pitch. He threw a 97-mile-an-hour sinker. And I get called up to the big leagues. They're like, all right, Jeff, you're going to run with Grimsley. Like, fine, whatever, I can do it. And the guy was just a machine. Like, you could not tire him out. And I could keep up with him because I, I, I took it upon myself to make sure that I was in the best shape, right? I'm undersized, big league pitcher. Yeah. This guy's 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, I'm six foot on a good day. But I was athletic. And I'm like, All right, I'm going to train, train my ass off and train hard. Keeping up with that guy, knowing that he, was, he had a ton of help in, in retrospect, you know, it's a little frustrating. But say la vie. I guess uh, you know, I can always say that I did it the right way. Maybe I don't have enough as many dollars in my pockets, but like whatever, you can't take it with you. Like it was a, it was a, like looking back on it, it's absolutely frustrating. Uh, but at the time I didn't even know. I was yeah. just trying. So you didn't know, like when you faced a Sosa or Maguire, you had no idea that these guys were juicing the way they were. Like the, 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 the guys that, uh, it was funny the the way that I like, I, I just, I just didn't, I didn't think about it. Right? I didn't care. Yeah. Because guess what? Like, whether you're clean or whether you're not, I still got to get you out. And you still have tendencies as a hitter that I can potentially exploit. But I remember watching Sammy Sosa a little bit. And I did face Sammy Sosa. I intentionally walked him, thank God. Um, that was the same day that I was warming up in Wrigley Field. And the best line I've ever heard coming out of the stands was, hey, Austin, are you a converted first baseman? You ruined my fantasy team. That was a good one. <laughs> um, but the guys like Fernando Tatis would like, it was, you know, 92 degrees or something. And they would all have like sleeves and pads and they like, 
they looked like they were always cold like guys with like the mo- the, the armor and like the more clothes they would wear were always the guys that were juicy um and i think fernando tatis was one of those guys that ultimately was um was implicated yeah. at some point um but i it didn't it didn't really even cross my mind i was just trying to get yeah. people you know? Well, hey, I mean, these guys like Barry Bonds was an all-star player, probably a Hall of Famer before he started juicing, right? Like he was an amazing player. A lot of these guys were already good players. And I, what I've read from other player testimonials is that the steroid stuff was big from like a recovery perspective, that these yeah. guys could play 162, no problem. You know, yeah. Andy Pettit came back from major surgery very quickly. A-Rod obviously tried to it as well. That's where I read was kind of the difference. Obviously the 400 foot home runs, but the recovery playing a marathon season and having that extra kick was kind of the main difference. And that's that's where I also think about my career, where as a reliever with Kansas City, you know, I, if I pitched two innings, I, I needed a day. I couldn't go out. My arm was tired. It was hanging. Yeah. I needed a day of recovery, whereas I played with guys that could go every single day, like Grimsley could do it every single day. Would that have made me more, more money? Or would that have made me, a, you know, a, a bigger impact player? Probably. But I didn't I didn't realize it at the time. Hey, hindsight's 2020. And to your point, at least you did it the right way. If you'd gotten caught in juicing and they like kicked you out of the league, that'd have been a lot more embarrassing than, you know. Or or guess what, right? I have a son now who, if that was my legacy, that would be hard for me to to swallow, right? Yeah, no, exactly. Although I'd be potentially swallowing it in a, you know, bigger house with a nicer car. Yeah, exactly. He would like be... (laughs) Flying private a, on every vacation, so he'd forgive you. Everything's a trade off. You can't look your son in your eyes, not in their eyes, but you can drive a nice Porsche. Yeah, exactly. Um, the other thing that I think is an awesome fact about you: you're represented by the legendary Scott Boris. The fans know Scott Boris. We know a couple other agents, but we mainly know Scott. Does he actually interact with every player, or were you like? Does he have like minions that he represents or that represent the players, like? What was that like being represented by kind of the guy when it came to agents? He was great. Um, every interaction I had with Scott was thoughtful. Um, this is again, 20 years ago. So who knows what the yeah. Scott board corporation has grown into, but I had a guy, one of his, you know, minions or, or, or one of his right hands at the time, his name's Scott Champarino. He pitched in the big leagues and, and he was in my back pocket and a trusted advisor to me as I was going through the college process. And then even in, in my uh, in my minor league time and in the big league time like he, they were um great sherpas and i could call scott champarino and if i needed to talk to boris i could but he was really the front man to you know the bargaining power and the um the the cachet and the you know the thoughtfulness around how to make his clients the most money they could if and when they got to free agency or even during, you know, uh, um, an initial signing bonus uh, uh, interaction, right? I, I, I sat out the first year of my first professional career, not quite like JD Drew did, but almost. I signed um, like ten days before the baseball season started. Really? I, almost, I almost, even after being drafted fourth overall, and you know, I, uh, I almost went back to school. Um, because Kansas city, even though I got paid a handsome signing bonus, I'm grateful for it, you know, relative to the market, it was, it was, I was underpaid relative to the market. Corey Patterson, I think was in front of me. I can't remember who was behind me, but it was like, so first pick was Pat Burrell, uh, Mark Mulder, Corey Patterson, myself and JD drew, I think was number five. 
Um, and he got like $10 million. He was a different, different deal. I was underpaid and it almost sent me back to school. But I'm glad I didn't, you know, I'm sure it's a different game now, yeah. but the, the way that Scott, the Scott Boris corporation approached negotiations with data um, long before, you know, I'm sure people were doing that. That was, it was very helpful to me in my career. Hey, well, there's always that one person too. You mentioned JD Drew, but there's always that one guy where Scott makes wait late too long. Like it's a Michael Conforto, ex-Met player now in the Giants. They made him wait out. I remember to the very beginning of the season and then he messed up his shoulder, just shagging balls in the outfield. And he lost himself like probably a hundred, I think $150 million. So it's like you pick this guy and it's sort of, you know, 99 times out of a hundred, you're probably making way more money than you normally would. But there's always that one person out there that just gets totally crushed by this hard negotiation tactic. Right. So to, to Scott's credit, he was like, Jeff, I think you can get more if you go back to school. And I was like, you know what? No. And he, to his credit, he's like, okay, no problem. I'll go get the deal done. Like he worked for me to your point. Like, I, you know, that could, that could have been Jeff Austin too. Yeah. Well, like the steroid stuff, hindsight's twenty twenty. but I think, especially given that you did end up your, you know, your shoulder caused issues, I'm sure going back another year in college, that could have been a terrible decision. Imagine if you got hurt in college and all of a sudden you just never even talk about it. Right. I would have had to go straight into sales. Oh my God. The horror. <laughs> <laughs> um, last question on your career, you kind of answered everything for me, but I do want to talk about the third year. You mentioned it earlier, you know, your, your infamous uh, three home runs was also your last game. What was it like for you knowing that kind of this dream was coming to an end? Like, what was it like for you when you're like, okay, this injury is going to be impossible to come back from like the mental aspect. I would just love to hear and hear what that, those few weeks or those few months were like for you. Yeah, it's, um, I guess it went in phases. I think that the, you know, the, I remember sitting, you know, they say, they sent me down after that three home run night. I remember sitting in the Atlanta airport and they were sending me back to Cincinnati and I went down to Louisville, uh, which was their triple A club. And I'm like, damn it. You know, I, I feel like that, that was like the first sign of like, you know, that I feel like I might've missed an opportunity, but I didn't get hurt until a little bit later. And I never thought that was the end. And even after I had surgery and was released by the rep, I went through a years worth of rehab. I went to, you know, a ball and pitched there and did rehab stints. And I was throwing like 82 miles an hour. It was really mm. rough. Um, then I went and kind of worked my way back up a little bit physically. And I went to pitch, pitch for the Long Island Ducks with Rocker. There's a million stories. We could just do a podcast on just John Rocker if you want to do that. <laughs> that'll, I'm sure that'll, that your New York audience will love that one. Um, but it wasn't until I was in Long Island and I looked around and I'm like, you know what? I'm a little bit long in the tooth already. At the time I was 29, but I was a dime a dozen, six foot right-hander throwing upper 80s with a decent breaking ball, a good slider. I could move the ball around. I could pitch a little bit, but there was a million guys like that. And it wasn't until then that I started to realize, I'm like, huh, what am I doing? Like I could probably, I probably could have gotten back. I honestly believe that. And maybe that's my ego. I could have gotten back to the big leagues, but it would have taken me, I don't know, a year and a half or two years worth of, you know, kicking around an independent ball. And maybe I wouldn't have. Um, and at that point it was a, like, I, I was so committed to being a ball player. I never had necessarily a plan B. Thank God I went to a good school and was able to just go and pick up and kind of transition to corporate life. But I never really had a plan B per se. I always thought I was going to be a big league ball player. 
And so the transition into what do I do next wasn't easy. I, 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 I compare it to somebody transitioning out of the military. All respect for that transition. And not, it's nothing in any way to say mm-hmm. that it, it as hard. But you really reinvent yourself and you become, you know, you have your identity associated with your, your role, your job. And every waking second of your life, you think about how to be better, how, how much more you can do or how much you can run or lift or, and then to have all of that change in a, a heartbeat, that was challenging. Yeah. I mean, it's like any career change. It's just daunting to think about, you know, I think a lot of people who are listening to the show are mid twenties, mid thirties, thinking, do I want to do this for the rest of my life? Probably a similar age as you, you were 29, 30, when you kind of made that change. So I think anything like that is daunting, but you then go on, you obviously, you joined the the coaching staff at Stanford for a couple of years, but then you go on to move into tech where you've worked at big tech companies. Uh, you worked at Google, right? You work now at tech startups and AI companies. Curious, why tech? What specifically brought you to tech? Why didn't you go in insurance or you know any other kind of classic corporate job? What brought you into tech and specifically tech sales? Yeah, I wish I wish it was a conscious decision. Honestly, I befriended a professor when I was back at school, finishing up my degree, and I was thirty years old. And I said, "Hey, I'm going to move to Austin, Texas, because it was close enough to where I grew up in Houston. I bought a house there. I'm like, okay, I got to get a job." He's like, "This professor was like, hey, I know a guy who." is in Austin. You should talk to him. And I'm just looking for what it is that I want to do. And yeah. he introduced me to another guy who was part of a late stage startup called Postini that did email security. I don't know the first day. I'm the least technical person at our, our company and most, and surely <laughs> this company that I went and worked for called Postini was purchased by Google for $650 million in 2007, 11 months after I joined it, I got lucky. Uh, I didn't, I was, you know, at 30 years old, I went from being a big league ball player to legitimately being an inside sales rep, a BDR. And I was crushing it. I was calling a hundred people a day because guess what? That was the job I was told to do. And I was the best BDR. And three months later, they put me in a sales role and eventually were purchased by Google. Uh, And I go and move out to California to work for Google. But I, it was, it was more, um, luck than anything else. I wish that it was a conscious decision because I decided to go into tech sales because of the margins or because I was interested. <laughs> you weren't passionate. You weren't passionate about the transition from on-premise to cloud software. That wasn't like what kept you up at night when you weren't playing ball. <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I remember the first night after the, you know, they bring you into job training. And I remember suggesting, I'm like, so this cloud thing, people want to have their boxes. Let's just give them a dummy box. Let's give them a plug with a box. And they're like, no, Jeff, you can't do that. That is funny. Well, and also for the listeners who aren't in sales, BDR, that's the entry level of sales is where you cut your teeth. That is professional cold calling, basically. Uh, Was there any, I'm trying to really bridge the gap. Was there anything that you took from your MLB career that you then applied to, whether it's BDR or just sales in general, or was it just kind of personality driven? I mean, here's, um, I I do think there's there's a personality component to, to being in sales, but here's why athletes are, succeed in sales is because they know that they have to put the work in, right? It wasn't about trying to sell something or trying to do it. It was about making a hundred phone calls a day. And like, it was about reps. It was about training. And I just knew that that was the amount of work that I had to do or was supposed to do. And it was more about work ethic than anything else. And if you're willing to put in the time, um, I don't think sales is necessarily rocket science might come as a shock to you, but it's just about 
putting in the work consistently. You heard me talk about consistency as a player um, from a manager's perspective. If you put in the work consistently and if you are disciplined to the point where you do it every day, inevitably, you'll either stumble backwards into a conversation or a deal. And then if you learn from it, that's how you get better. But it's all about consistency and discipline. And I think that that was the, um, you know, those are the two reasons why I had any sort of success in sales. That's cool. I mean, yeah, it's discipline, it's consistency. It's just doing what you're supposed to do every single day, not making excuses. Is it you now looking back at it, you've spent probably not equal parts in tech. You obviously started baseball at a young age, but you know, you kind of have like this now very distinct second chapter of being in tech. Do you consider yourself now more of like a tech person or just a still a former athlete? How do you kind of define yourself now? Ooh, good question. You know, as a, as a, what am I, 46 year old man going through midlife crises and <laughs> buying, you know, buying midlife crisis cars and I have three kids. I identify as a dad more than anything. I identify as the, the, the best thing about having a career change that prompted almost me to reinvent myself as a human. Like I was that deep in the identity of a baseball player. It, it, it's almost like when you go to a funeral and it puts a lot of things in perspective. You come away from you know, reflecting on someone's life and thinking about what is actually important um, and not getting wrapped up in the ups and downs of sales, I identify myself as a dad first and foremost. And the second thing I identify with is just a human that, you know, can, can somehow be the change that you want to see in the world. And whether that is through, you know, my kid's life or me as a part of my community or as a father or as a, as a leader, like that's ultimately what it is. I, I would like to identify as an ex-athlete. I don't think I was good enough for long enough. <laughs> Uh, I certainly don't identify as a, as a, as a tech, tech executive. Um, maybe I'll get there. Hey, I think you're allowed to identify yourself as a former athlete. If you make seven digits playing the sport that little kids play, I think you're allowed to, uh, identify yourself as at least a former athlete. You know, I think you give yourself a little more credit than that. It was a good, it was a good ride. It was a good ride. I got tons of more stories about the, the, the cool part about what you just said, like I got to play a kid's game for money. Yeah. I get to ride. Um, and that, that was the best part about being an athlete was being an athlete, like being as like feeling like I was a superstar, even though I wasn't necessarily, I got to hang out with Barry Larkin and Ken Griffey Jr. For God's sakes, I got to be on charter flights where they were serving sushi and buckets of beer. And I was playing cards with Johnny Damon. Um, like those moments when I felt big time and being an, being a ball player was the most fun about thing about being a ball player it was a lot of hard work it was a lot of like not anxiety but like um it wasn't it wasn't as easy as i wanted it to be uh but it was a it was cool to be a ball player and the you know the money that that i made was just icing on the cake what's also unique about you is that perspective is something you've probably developed now that you've been out of the game like you weren't this player who played 50 years who could then just retire in the golf course you reinvented yourself did you or do players in general, do you have that perspective when you're in the game? Like when you're in it, going on the road as a 27-year-old kid playing ball, like do you have that perspective? Like I have the best life on earth or is it something that you developed kind of later after getting into, into corporate life? I think that, I think the good ones do. I never did. You never, I don't think you never, never appreciate something until it's gone like that uh, because you're in so deep. It's almost like you don't, you don't realize it until it's gone. 
Um, I think the good ones do like the guys like Jeter, um, the guys that, that are just consistently impressive and like, they just may be superhumans. They may be aliens. Um, the, the, the perennial superstars, the folks that have time to build foundations and give back to society and then go out and hit three jacks and, you know, make the, make the game winning play, um, or just consistently perform year after year after year. I think they get it. I don't think I was that good. You were also too young at the time, right? You never, you probably get that when you're like 38, 37, yeah. you know, yeah. And I think, you know, having kids and like life, you know, life deals you deals you some lemons and you're forced to gain that perspective um you know i um i didn't deal with many hardships until like everybody goes through stuff i like lost my dad after baseball or got divorced or whatever it is like i I had it too easy um and so i don't think i had that perspective last question and this has been great jeff i appreciate you joining me late at night after putting your kids to bed talk to me about tech and baseball but Last question. I, I started off before we started recording saying the most excited, the reason I was most excited to have you on is I think everyone at one point thinks about a career change, by the way, I'm not, I'm very happy. I'm good <laughs> But <laughs> for my, for my fellow coworkers listening. I'm very happy, but I do have friends who I told you were coming on the show and I told them your story and they were mentioned, Oh, you know, I'm kind of thinking about doing a career change myself. What is your advice to that person out there who has to go through that career change? Cause that's what you did. You went from a ball player to a you know, a leader in technology. So you've given us some thoughts, but what would be that kind of one piece of advice you give to someone just trying to make a move or, or make a change in their life like that? I, we were talking earlier and you said, you know, Jeff, you kind of made the jump from a ball player to, to corporate America. And my immediate thought was I didn't really jump. I got pushed out the door. I had, <laughs> right. Hey, you're not good enough anymore. Beat it. All right. I got to go get a real job. Um, I think it's just like anything. I think that there's a, you know, a story about you, know, you, you kind of have to be struggling for air and have to want something so bad um, to make it work. And it all goes back to the reasons why you have to understand your personal why. And it doesn't matter what that is. You want to go live in Dubai, you want to go live in huts over the ocean in Bora Bora or whatever. You want to drive Porsches, you would just, you want to be a philanthropist and ride jets with, with Jeff Bezos, whatever it is. Maybe you just want a roof over your head and a house in the suburbs. Like you just have to want it bad enough. And you have to, when, when the going gets tough, cause it will in anything, you just have to know your personal why. Like you can always fall back on that to motivate you. Like you are being held underwater and I need to get up so bad. Cause it's like a breath of air. Cause otherwise you're just going to get you know, and it's commitment yep. to doing that. It's discipline. And then it's building the habits to be consistent to get you to where you want to go. Because nothing's easy. Nothing's easy. Yep. Not real estate, not sales, not rocket science, not being a doctor, not a paper route, because nothing's easy. And you just have to understand why it is you want what you want. And then you have to commit to it. Yeah. That's awesome. And I, I appreciate that. And I think it's something everyone can relate to. And my takeaway is know your personal why and don't leave a hanging change up to Gary Sheffield. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was a fastball. I just wasn't that fast. <laughs> awesome. Well, listen, Jeff Austin, thank you for coming on, man. Former big leaguer, current technology executive, good human dad. Appreciate you coming on the show, telling your story. And as always, it's, it's great chat with you, man. When uh, baseball playoffs come back around, maybe I'll get invited back and we'll 
I'll name drop some more and we'll talk playoffs. Yeah. I'm glad you weren't here during the Mets Royals World Series a few years ago. You and I would have been at, you know, very contentious. So hopefully when <laughs> they make know. it back. That assumes I was rooting for the Royals. Like it's kind oh, of that's true. Yeah, that's right. The Reds were your last love. Um, maybe we'll go to a Long Island Duck game. <laughs> oh, geez. That'd be great. I'd love it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate you coming Thanks on, man. Take care. Great having Jeff on the show. Awesome guy. Funny stories. Just really cool hearing what's like to be a ball player transitioning into corporate life. And so with that, hope everyone has a great weekend. We will be back next Friday and we'll talk to you soon. See ya.